what I wanted to do was just take us to John chapter two and I'll explain what we're doing in a moment. John chapter two and verse one. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now take some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine but you've kept the best till now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that word is truth. We pray you'll teach us from it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So what do you do in the middle of a pandemic? What do you do when there's a curfew on each night? What do you do when people are desperate and panicking and not knowing where to turn? And I think the answer is always that you turn to Scripture. But there are significant passages and you may be surprised that I would choose John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. But to me, it is one of the most significant passages you could choose. It's the first miracle Jesus does. It's the moment that he starts his disciples on that journey where they're gonna turn the world inside out, upside down and back to, to front. It's the moment when history is gonna to begin to change, when everything is going to become dramatically different. And so you get John chapter two and the entry point of it all. And I love the passage and I love what it speaks of. And I wonder if you will forgive me for something that I wanna share. You see, you may well have guessed that I didn't originate in the USA. There is this slight vestigial twang that identifies me as a European to be precise as a Brit. And I wanna apologize and ask if you'll let me speak in my native tongue for just a few moments. You may not naturally understand it, so you're gonna to have to work at this. You see, I'm British, but I come from London and I was brought up in the East End of London. So I, I was brought up in Cockney territory. And back in the 1940s and World War II, the little communities in the East End 
would go and hide together in the shelters when the bombing came. And there was a little old lady who would sleep like a baby every night. No one could understand it. How do you do it, love? How do you sleep like a baby? And so she replied, oh my dear, she said, I didn't used to, like, when this bombing had started, like, I could not sleep. She said, so I, I said to the good Lord, I did, I said, Lord, I can't sleep. She said, the good Lord, he spoke to me. He said, I know you can't, my daughter. She said, so I got cross with him. I got cross with him, I did. I said, if you know I can't, I can't sleep, Lord, why don't you help me? She said, the good Lord, he said to me, but you do need your sleep, my daughter. She said, I know I need more sleep, but how can I sleep with all these bombs coming down? How can I sleep with all these buildings collapsing? I can't sleep. She said, the good Lord, he said to me, well, you'd better sleep, my daughter. There's no point us both staying up all night worrying about it. You see, Scripture is very specific. In Psalm 121 and verse four, we read that he who keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God's awake and on the job. God's got his eyes on Wilmington right now. God has turned his face to the United States and recognises the pain, the anxiety, the fear, and the trouble. And the living God will not sleep on the job. He will stay awake and alert and ready. And he wants to do something in us and for us. Just like all those years ago, by the waters of Galilee, up there in the hills in Cana, he came in that first wedding feast and he did something dramatic. And I wanna give you five things this morning. Five little cameo lessons never to forget. Because when you run out of speed, when you don't know what to do, when you haven't a clue how to cope, these are the five things the living God wants to say to you. These are those. Number one, you can't divide your life into the secular and the spiritual. You can't be one thing, coming together, worshiping, or worshiping separately in your homes on a Sunday, and then be something different on Monday morning. You can't divide life into the secular and the spiritual. I want you to note that when Jesus wanted to start his earthly ministry, my Jesus did not go to the temple, nor did he go to the synagogue, nor did he go to the TV studio or choose the radio program. He just went to a party. You may say, no, he didn't, he went to a wedding. Oh, come on. 
In those days, weddings were different. A wedding lasted seven days. And it was a party. The kind of party it was is best summed up by the fact that when they ran out of wine, which was an unmitigated social disaster, my Jesus created some more. 2,880 half pints more. That was just to top up the shortfall. It was that kind of party. The party that maybe many listening to this would not have been seen dead in. But Jesus wanted to make a statement right from the beginning. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, whatever you face, He hasn't given up on you. Whether you're in a prison cell because of what you've done, or whether you're remembering a relative or a friend being killed by a set of stupid actions. Whatever it may be, my Jesus doesn't divide life up. He wants to be alongside you, meeting your need, bringing forgiveness, bringing grace, bringing healing, bringing freedom. That's the kind of God that he is. Those are the kind of things that he does. He never sleeps on the job. He's always gonna be with you. So you can't divide life into the secular and the spiritual. He's always going to be with you. Whatever you're doing, if you'll let him. Secondly, he starts his ministry at a wedding. Why on earth would he do that? Why begin at a wedding? And the answer is because one day he's going to finish at a wedding. What he started with a wedding, he's going to finish with a wedding. It's the way he works. The reality is that one day Jesus is coming back. And when my Jesus returns, the heavens will open. The Son of Man will come back to get married. Now, I'm never quite sure how much other people love doing weddings. I love taking weddings. I love the thrill and the excitement. But I want to share with you the joy of one British wedding. Back in the 1970s, which I was taking and I was dressed up in the way you're supposed to be. I'd got a suit on, a clerical collar around my neck my grey clerical shirt, looking like a clergyman. And I had tried to get the bridal party ready. I had told the bridegroom that he needed to sit in that chair down there. And the best man needed to sit next to him. And they needed to get ready for the bride's arrival. Now this particular church was a Baptist church and you need to understand something about Baptist churches in Britain before the renewal came in the 1980s. 
Because like most Baptist churches of the time, this place was a mausoleum. It was huge and it was dark. And there they are, the bridegroom and the best man sitting next to each other, waiting for the bride's arrival. When she would come in, a vision of radiant loveliness on her father's arm. And everybody who'd gathered for the wedding would rise and stand for the bride to come up the aisle. The bridal march would be playing. And I had said to the best man, look, when the bride's coming up the aisle, get the bridegroom into the aisle ahead of the bride. And when she's about 10 feet away, get the bridegroom to turn round, nudge him. Get him to turn round and smile reassuringly at his bride. I mean, she's gonna have to sit opposite him at the breakfast table for the next 50 years or so. She's gonna need all the encouragement that's going. So give her a nudge, give him a nudge, get him to smile encouragingly at his bride, all will be well. Bride's coming up the aisle, vision of radiant loveliness. Everybody is, is standing and smiling and everyone's thrilled. The bridegroom and the best man are standing. The best man gets ready to nudge the bridegroom and a look of horror crosses over my face. Michael, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I realised we'd got the wrong woman. I felt this was fairly serious. I knew any moment the bridegroom would nudge, be nudged by the best man. He would turn to smile at his bride and be faced with a rather sudden decision. What do you do if you're just about to get married to the wrong person? Now, there's something else I need to say and I need to put this delicately. The bride on this occasion was of somewhat plain features. She was a lovely Christian girl who was gonna be a wonderful wife, but she didn't look as if she was gonna win a beauty contest. Can I put it like that? And the bridegroom is about to turn to greet his bride. And as the best man gets ready to nudge, I look more closely and I paused for a moment and thought, my goodness gracious me, that could be the right woman. I don't believe it. And she's never looked like that in her life as far as I know. Because on her wedding day, she looked drop dead gorgeous. And the best man nudged the bridegroom and he turned and went, cool. He was thrilled to bits. And we had got the right girl. Just on a wedding day, she looked totally different. A vision of radiant loveliness, waiting for her bridegroom. When Jesus comes back for his bride, he's not coming back for a poor, haggard old woman hobbling up the aisle on crutches in a filthy wedding garment. He's coming back for a bride fit for a king. He's coming back for a bride that shines with the beauty and the joy of someone in love with their bridegroom. There is something wonderful and spectacular about a wedding when that takes place. And on this particular occasion, 
Everybody knew that something was beginning that would last forever. 50 years later, it still lasts. It is a wonderful moment when you recognize that my Jesus starts at a wedding because he wants to say you cannot divide life into the secular and the spirit. You can't live part for Jesus and do the rest yourself. At the same time, he starts at a wedding because one day he's gonna finish at one and the clouds will break open and the Son of Man will come back for his bride for us to spend eternity with him. But at this particular wedding at Cana in Galilee, the disaster happens. They run out of wine. And there's a simple instruction issued by the mother of Jesus who is presumably biased. She says to the stewards at the wedding feast, fill the water pots with water and take it. And the idea is if you take it to Jesus, something's gonna happen. Now he's never done a miracle. He's never preached a sermon. There is no evidence who he is. And yet when water is taken and put in the hands of Jesus, he has a nasty habit of making it wine, of turning it round and making it totally different. And that's exactly what happens. The water becomes wine. The streets of Wilmington become peaceful. The noise and the din and the bellows of the politicians become calm moments of prayer and peace. The recognition is there that hostility between races and ethnicities subside because the king of glory is allowed to get his hands on it. It is incredible what happens when you put water in the hands of Jesus. It doesn't stay water. He can make it into wine. I'd love you to meet my friend, Yoka. It's spelt joke, but she's no joke. She's Dutch. She's over six foot tall. And one day when she was young, God said to her, I want you to go on a journey for me, but I want you to go for life. And God sent her to Cambodia, to a country that had been ripped apart by hostility, torture, death. I've been a few times to the torture chamber, chamber Toich Lang, in the heart of Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, the capital. I've seen what they used to do. And it's an incredible scene of bitterness and hatred and anger. When my friend Yoka went to Cambodia, she was single. She longed to have a husband. But it was a very strange place to go to. Because you see, Yoka's six foot two inches tall. Have you ever seen a six foot two inch tall Cambodian male? The Khmer aren't tall, they're short. And Yoka went because Jesus told her to. And he turned water into wine. 
He took one little Dutch girl and made her into a hero. After the genocide in Cambodia, at the back end of the 1970s, there were two pastors left alive. By the time Yoka had finished, she had planted 500 churches in seven years. She never allowed a single European or American to go into any of those churches. She simply took the Khmer, the Cambodians. She wouldn't go in herself. She taught them how to go and share Jesus with each other. She taught them how to bring one another to Jesus. She taught them how to worship. And she changed the country. That's what happens when the Lord gets hold of water. He makes it into wine. By the way, she's still single. She never got the dreams of her life, but she made history. And the way she did it was by taking hold of a bunch of words that my wife Ruth and I taught our kids years ago when they were knee high to a grasshopper. They were the words that were used at that wedding feast. Do whatever he tells you. You may say, what on earth can we do about the situation in our land today? Do whatever he tells you. You may say, whatever can we do to make Wilmington different today? Do whatever he tells you. You may say, what can really change in our nation? Just do whatever he tells you. It's not what you do for him, it's what he does through you. It's what you allow him to come and do. It's what you allow him to come and achieve. When you stop trying to divide life into the secular and the spiritual and you let every moment of every day, everything that you have and are belong to Jesus. When you recognise that his whole purpose is to create a bride, a people, a church that will love him and be fit for him to come back for. When you acknowledge that he takes the water of human weakness and failure and makes it into wine because he's got his hand on it and he can do something different with it. When you do whatever he tells you and you go out on a limb with the living God and let him achieve what would be utterly impossible if it was left to human imaginations. Then you get a story beginning that John is gonna go on telling through the next 19 chapters of this book. What happens when you do whatever he tells you? Of course, the water is taken to the steward of the feast, but by now it's become wine. And his verdict is, I've never tasted anything like it. What on earth can have happened? I don't know if you've ever been a, a, a boy scout or a girl guide. If you've ever done that, you'll know that you are sometimes asked to go and lay a trail. And if you've got really bored and tired and fed up, you leave a sign to say, I'm bored and tired and fed up and I've gone home. The sign you leave is a circle with a dot in the middle. The man who founded the Boy Scouts movement, Lord Baden-Powell, had one thing put on his tombstone. It was a circle with a dot in the middle. Gone home, 
Job finished. Return to base. Come back to where it all started. Billy Graham, one of the last books that Bill ever wrote was called Nearing Home. It's a wonderful book about what it's like when you're getting near to glory. And you wanna write, write about what it's like when you're approaching the end. At the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, the steward of the feast said, people do not normally leave the best till last. It may seem really odd to think that our God leaves the best till last, that he takes our lives and uses them. He gives us the fun and the thrill of the adventure but then one day he takes us home and that's the best. I remember being in a British hospital bed about four months ago, wondering if I was ever gonna get out of it again and being told by the nurses that I would be very fortunate if I ever did get out of it again. And I remember being really surprised at being confronted by the imminence of, ham of heaven I'm wondering how I was gonna feel about it. Having spent my life preaching about the fact that the Lord leaves the best till last and there's nothing to worry about, I wondered what it would actually be like if there was a chance that I was going home. Now, for some reason, the Lord obviously decided I'd got another lap or two of the track to do, so I recovered. But I do remember that feeling of, it's all right. He's had my life under control. There is no reason that he shouldn't have the end under control. Could it be that he always has left the best to last and that I'm gonna have eternity with Jesus and that's gonna be the end of it? That's the joy. That's the thrill. That's the excitement. I said there were five things. Here they go. Number one. Don't divide your life into the secular and the spiritual. Live it all for Jesus. Number two, get the bride ready for the bridegroom. Get ready for the king's return. Number three, let him take the water of your weakness and failure, make you into wine. Number four, do whatever he tells you, whatever it means. Go out on a limb with him. Number five, Never forget, he leaves the best till last. Wilmington needs a new day. Wilmington needs a new moment. Wilmington needs a new expression of divine love. Wilmington needs church to rise up and be the people of God. It doesn't need people going through the motions of Christianity. It doesn't need people still learning how to pray. It needs people knowing what it means to pray, knowing what it means to live, knowing what it means to work and to be the people of Jesus. It needs people going out on a limb. America needs that. This world needs the expression of the living God through His people. And so Jesus starts again with a new people and a new day. And He's always leaving the best till last because there's a new chapter to write and He wants to write it through you and through me. And He wants to start it today.